Well, good to have you here today, and we're going to open up our Bibles now to Proverbs chapter 26. We're looking forward to a good time in the Word of God today. You know, last week we had a uh, what I consider one of the most practical lessons of life that, uh, that you could ever go through. And, you know, the Bible is great for doctrine. <clears throat> it's always nice to know how many warts the Antichrist has on the side of his head and all those things. But uh, uh, going through life and the struggles of life, it's going to come down to the practical things of, of the Word of God. And last week we had a good inside look as to why, you know, things in our lives are, are, are the way that they are. And I thought it was a, a great insight uh, into people and, and their issues. You know, Proverbs is such a basically practical book that it's filled with just one-liners that if you just take and, and develop, and that's what we really try to do. Obviously, I point out the doctrinal because I want to balance it all out, but fundamentally what I want to do is I want to just take these one-line incredible concepts that as you look at them, don't really seem to mean much, but when you develop them, oh, they open up into things, and, and you'll see that as you have, and certainly you will see it today. And, you know, we talked about the slothful and the sluggard. That's been the theme here. We're going to move into another type of person here uh, in, the, in the next week, but we've been looking at the slothful and the sluggard. And last week we saw in verse 14 how that somebody that is like that is, uh, is like a door on hinges, the Bible says. And I told you how that a door never has any rest. It just keeps opening and closing, opening and closing. And that is so so typical of so many of God's people who are slothful with the Word of God or sluggards when it comes to the principles of the Bible. They never have any rest. They never have any peace. And we talked about really what it meant to have a good conscience toward God. And I think that all of those things, you know, are very important in our Christian lives. And you want to have those things. You know, and we see people deal with them all the time. I know I have in the scope of my area of ministry over and over again, time and time again, the problems of life will plague us uh, and, uh, you know, and will just overwhelm us in some cases. Then I looked at, we looked at verse 15 and talked about how it talked about it's hard, it grieves us to take our hand to our mouth. And when you look at that, you know, you don't really get the full impact until you kind of work it through a little bit of the rest of the Bible. But it's talking about we, we reap what we sow, but sooner or later we got to eat what we reap. And, you know, and most people have a steady diet of grief in their life, God's people. And it, it shouldn't be that way. And we talked about what we build with our hands and how that it grieves us when we build something that's the wrong thing. We got to deal with it. It's ours. We can't push it off on somebody else. We can't shun our responsibility that we own it. And we talked last week, it'll either, whatever you build with your hands will come back and be the greatest blessing in your life or it'll come back and it'll bite you. But it'll go one way or the other. And then we looked at verse 16, which I thought was an incredible verse. Uh, uh, It covers so many areas and you're going to see this today, uh, a little more development of it, where it talked about somebody being wise in their own conceits. And how somebody, seven men could sit down, seven being the number of perfection, seven men could sit down and open up the Bible and try to show somebody where they're wrong with the Word of God, and yet they're unteachable. Uh, They're unteachable in Bible issues, and and unfortunately, they're unteachable in life's issues. 
And that's why, going back to a couple of weeks ago, the dog and the sow returning to the mower and the vomit, and uh, it's somebody that'll just be, you know, totally unteachable. Those were great practical lessons for all of us. And today, I want to move through a few more verses that are kind of connected together here, and uh, uh, we'll see again more uh, practical truth for, for our learning, things that we can put into our own world, into our own lives that we can really glean from. And yet, you know, uh, these wor- verses that we're going to look at today, they'll, they'll yield some great lessons in history. I- I'm a firm believer, always have been, that you can't separate the Bible and history. And they all go together. And uh, God teaches you through both because they're both connected. And you can't really, really have one without the other. You've got guys who claim to really know the Bible, know nothing about history. And you've got guys who know a lot of history, know nothing about the Bible. I'm going to tell you, you've got to have a blend of both uh, if you're ever going to get to that place in your life. And, you know, in one more time, uh, you know, we're going to see the conceit and how it will, uh, man in their conceit will never learn anything from not only the lessons of life, but they'll never learn anything from the lessons of history. Now, I want to begin reading here, uh, Proverbs chapter 26, and believe it or not, we're going to get through one, two, three, four, five verses today. I know, I know, I'm, 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 I, 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 I don't know, can I tell you, you know what, next week we'll spend six months on one verse, but here it goes. He that passes by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. As a madman who casteth firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport? Uh, where no wood is, there a fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Joe Christensen, would you stand up and ask God blessing on my preaching this morning? Well, after that one, I just give the invitation. We change over prayer groups. That's pretty good preaching there, Joe. Thank you. Now, let's look at this. Verse 17. He that passes by and meddleth with strife, belongeth not to him, is like one that taketh a dog by the ear. Now, for the record, before we get started here, uh, most dogs don't like you messing with their ears. Now, I got a little female lab left. Her name is Daisy. She doesn't mind. You can do anything you want to do with your ears. But Buster, on the other hand, Buster's a little camp dog that we rescued at a camp when we were going up north someplace there. And I'd never seen it. Somebody put him out, and he had been out for probably all summer, and he was just infested with, with uh, ticks. I mean, uh, you look down in his ears, and they were filled to the brim with ticks. It was, it was a terrible deal. Obviously, He's still suffering from whatever damage was done, but you grab his ears, he'll bite you. Uh, you know, it's just that simple. You know, little kids sometimes, you got to be careful with little kids with dogs because little kids love those big soft ears, but they think that they screw on and they screw off. <laughs> and so they'll and they grab a hold of the dog. And the dog is normally a gentle dog, but a dog can panic in a moment and panic. 
And, you know, many times they bite the kid or snap at him anyhow, growl at him. You know, you don't want that. Uh, you know, in, in our illustration here of dogs uh, in their ears, the principal lesson here is, is very clear, and it, it's really a good one in a practical way. Now, he's saying here that the man that is just passing by, we already know that he's slothful and he's a sluggard. We've talked about him throughout our chapter. And what he does is he sees a situation or he sees an issue. He sees a problem uh, that the Bible says doesn't belong to him. It's none of his business. And he thrusts himself into the, the conflict, and, and, and maybe his motive is right. Maybe he wants to, uh, you know, maybe he wants to try to help the situation, thinks that he can. He's got the spiritual tools to do it, or maybe he just likes to be close to a good fight. I don't know. But he throws himself into it, and obviously it blows up in his face. Now, I love the illustration of taking a dog by the ears because we've all kind of had that experience at some point in our life. Uh, taking a dog by the ears can quickly, uh, like the issues of life, become a bad situation. I mean, you can't hold on to him because he's twisting and growling and biting. But you know if you let go, he's going to bite you. So you're kind of in a no-win situation, much like you'll find yourself in a lot of situations in life. You got yourself into it. You can't get, let, if you get it go of it, you're going to get bit. If you don't let go, it's only going to get worse. Now, the answer is a simple answer, as Proverbs is a simple book. It's, it's a simple answer, and it's, you know, I, I hate to be continually the master of the obvious, but, you know, that's, it's, it, it, the answer is just be smarter than the problem. Mind your own business. I mean, that's an easy concept. You know, uh, stay out of other people's business unless, you know, they ask you, you to help. You know, I mean, uh, here we have a case of the dog catcher being caught by the dog, and uh, sometimes it, he can bite you pretty bad. Uh, one time I, I had a, a, a male lab, it was a brown lab, his name was Buddy, and he was very defensive of me. And uh, if anybody, even the other lab, I've always had brothers and sisters, even if the other lab would come around, he'd just begin to growl. He was a mean dog, big dog too. One time, Steve Brackeen's dad, Steve Brackeen Sr., came over to see me. And we were walking uh, you know, came in through the garage. I just happened to be out there. And Steve's been around dogs all of his life. And I had this white fence, you know, that keeps him from getting from one part of the basement to the other. Finished basement. And, uh, and, and Steve, before I could say anything, Steve Jr., or Steve Sr. reached over to pet him, you know, and that dog lunged up, caught him by the shirt, and pulled him right over that fence. And I felt terrible. Ripped his shirt. You know, it's a good thing. You know, he'd been around dogs all of his life, so he didn't. One time, I was down there with him, and he was, I was at that same gate. And I was petting him, and somebody rang the doorbell. A doorbell in my house, by the way, if you come over, does not work. It hasn't worked. I unhooked it right after that because I was tired of getting That dog reached up, and I had, to get, I had to get six stitches in my arm. He just ripped me open. And then it was one of those things like when he did it, you know, you know how you, the dog will look at you like, okay, I'm back now. Uh, oh, boy, I'm really sorry about that. I mean, he, you can see it in his eyes, you know. But dogs can, they can bite you hard, man. I ain't kidding you. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where you, you just got to be careful. And in, when it comes to counseling scenarios, and you know this is true because we talk about it all the time. I tell you, in any counseling scenario, almost without exception, there are a few exceptions. But almost 99% of the time, you never take sides in it. You just never do. Taking sides in a counseling scenario, 
unless it falls into the category that you need to. It's like grabbing a dog by the ears. I mean, you just never do that. You got to stay neutral. And when you take sides, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get bit. It's just that simple. And uh, you, so you got to be careful with that. You just lay out the principles and let the book be the guide uh, to who needs to change and what they need to change. And then you can give them options, but it's one of those things where, you know, it's, you know, you just got to be careful. I, I learned uh, many years ago, uh, you don't stick your nose in other people's business unless you're asked. But, but I want to tell you, as a pastor, I love people. And as a pastor, you can see when things, people are falling into the wrong patterns. I mean, you can. And I'm not going to lie to you this morning. There have been many a times in my life, in my ministry, I've seen people who were good people, and I saw them cross the line and they were headed for trouble. But I never say anything. Because I know it's not going to be accepted. I mean, I see issues with people's kids where you're going to have some real problem with your kids. I don't say a word unless I'm asked. I mean, I just don't. You know why? Because it's none of my business, first of all. And it's a situation where, uh, in most cases, you don't see it. You don't want to hear it. And as parents, we all suffer from the same dilemma that we think our kids can do no wrong. And that's just not true. And so I see the patterns develop sometimes. I I watched a documentary this week, and, you know, I, please, I'm no spiritual giant. I'm really not. I know when I say things like this, people get the idea that I, I look for something spiritual to learn in everything. And, and, and that's, 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 that's true to a degree because you can't separate history from the Bible. And I was watching a documentary this last week on the Titanic. Now, the Titanic has always been a great attraction to me. I love things like that. I think the the missing appearance of Amelia Earhart is one of the great mysteries. And she's lived right over here in Kansas, not too far. Of course, everybody in Kansas disappears at some point in time, so it's okay. <laughs> but but I love things like that. I, I do. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the JFK conspiracy, you know, and assassination of John, just enthralled me, things like that. And, I, and I, so the Titanic has always been a, uh, I mean, I've, I've watched every movie. You, you know, you always think of the one with Jack, uh, what's his last name? Jack uh, Dawson. Da- Dawson. Jack Dawson, you, the one who just came out. You know, you always think of that one. But there's been, the best one, without a doubt, was made back in the 50s called The Night to Remember. If you ain't watched that one, you ain't seen a good movie on the, you know, the, the modern one had too much. I like movies that, that have real, some real doctrine and truth, but don't have any sideshow love affairs going on. You know what I'm saying? Amen. I, I mean, it just takes away from the movie. What do I care that she jumped off the bow of the Titanic in freezing water? Good for her. You know, I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's okay. You know, I mean, I, I, you got to have, you got to build, and I guess you got to do that to sell it up. But if you want a good one, the best one is a night to remember. Then about four or five years later, they made another one just called the Titanic, way back in the day. I think it was in the 60s. And then there have been a few of them, you know, that come out. The big one we all know has Leonardo the cup of coffee uh, in it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I like it. I do. I do like it. I, I think the special effects of, of, of the night, that, that it would, I think it's just terrifying to me. I mean, I, and it was, it was a disaster. And I watched that thing, and here again, yes, 
I'm always looking for some spiritual insight out of it. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? That was a terrible disaster. Over 1,600 people died on that night. That sucker sank in about two and a half hours. And looking back, now that we see it and, and, and have it all in perspective, which they could have had then, you know there were some clear warning signs that there was a disaster coming with that ship? Now, we look back in hindsight some 100 years later because it sank in 1912, so it's over 100 years. We look back now and we, we can look at it. But you know what? If anybody was paying attention that night, you know that there were some warning signs that you should have dealt with that, that never would have happened. You know what the first one was? The first one was that everybody was sending out all the ships ice warnings. They were telling everybody that there's ice out there, and a lot of the ships had stopped because of the fact that they wasn't going to try to maneuver through the ice field. And they were sending out telegraphs, and the the Titanic got them, ice field ahead, ice ahead. The second thing, there was a warning sign, that it was a very calm night, and on a very calm night with no wind and a black night, it's hard to see uh, iceberg, because if, if, if you got some waves flapping up against them, then it kind of it gives you a, an outline border that you can see, but it was dead calm. And I'll tell you the third thing. They put the watch it. They doubled the lookout, but somebody forgot to give them binoculars. So they're up there in the freezing cold trying to look through it as the ship's moving through the water, trying to look for the iceberg. And they saw it, but they saw it way too late. If they would have had binoculars, they'd have seen it long before it ever got there. And I'll tell you the next warning thing. With all of those things going, they were going way too fast. You see, the builder of the ship was on that ship that night, and the captain, this was his last voyage. (laughs) I'm more ways than one. (laughs) And what they wanted to do with this brand-new Titanic ship, they wanted to set a a world speed record from England to America. So it was full bore a speed ahead. And that's why when they saw it, they couldn't turn it, they couldn't stop it. They were going way too fast. But you know what the real issue was that we can learn from that? And those are great practical applications. That we can learn. I'm in Kenya. Some of you are not paying attention to the circumstances around you. You're going too fast in life. You're not looking at the warning signs. But the greatest thing that, that brought this disaster into being was their attitude. They were wise in their own conceits. They thought that it didn't matter how fast they went. It didn't matter if there was ice out there. It didn't matter how dark it was because everybody said this ship is the ship that God himself could not sink. Wise in your own conceit. And we all have this problem. We all think that, yeah, the Bible's there, the principles are there, but we're, we're always an exception to the rule. And that'll get you, that'll get you, man. And, uh, you know, I, I don't ever say things to people because they don't see the warning side. And, I, and here's another reason. Too many times on Sunday morning like this, I've tried to grab you by both ears in my message, and you don't hear it. You bite me. And so I just follow that rule unless, uh, you know, and I've had people, and I love them, and I know. I'm not saying there are people I believe in my world who I could see something and say something to, and they would respect it. But I have people all the time say, well, if you ever see anything in my life, you make sure you tell me. That works right up till I do it. (laughs) Because when you said that, you're in one mindset. When you're now crossed over the line and the warning signs are setting in, now you're in another mindset. So... You know, a while back, I, 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 I preached a message, you know, the handwriting on the wall out of Daniel. 
about the patterns. And I'm telling you, you can see it in somebody's life that the handwriting is on the wall. They're headed for trouble. And in 99% of the cases, not a thing you're going to be able to do about it. They have developed a terminal case of, I don't want to hear it. And that's, that's, what, that's what you're dealing with. So, I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible concept. And, and not only do I see it in people's lives, boy, do I see it in history. You talk about grabbing a dog by both ears. I mean, I, I, I look at America. If, there, if there's any place, uh, our country, uh, and please don't take this the wrong way. I think it's a great country. I fought for it once. I know many of you did. We'd all fight for it again. I love it. Da-da-da-da-da-da. I live here. I'm here. I understand my pin in it. But I want to tell you, when it comes to the leadership of our country today and maybe the last 40 years, we have the most hypocritical government on this planet. They're absolutely a bunch of power-hungry, power-grabbing politicians who care nothing about the common man. All they care about is staying in office and then finding the lucrative money that he can make being a politician. I've never understood it till I got a little bit into the Bible why a senator or a congressman or even a president would spend $87 million to become president of the United States when the annual income every year for four years is $300,000. That's way out of balance. That's like you going and, you know, and, and, and spending, uh, going, wanting to get in a job at McDonald's and paying the manager $150,000 so you could get the job and then you make $7 an hour for the rest of your life. Something, something there that they're making money doing. I, I just, I, sometimes I sit back and I watch the news. I try to stay up on it. I'm a newsy guy. I, I try to, you know, keep up with, uh, with things the way they are because, you know, I, you know, you don't, everybody, nobody wants to, it's like staying awake uh, when your guy that's driving the car in the middle of the night is really, really tired. You want to stay awake because you don't want to miss a good wreck. You know, you, I stay awake because I don't want to miss what's going on here. In the last two years, let me show you how this thing works. The last couple of years, our senatorial investigating committees, the Congress and everybody, has been investigating how that the Russian government tried to interfere with our election, the last election we had. For two and a half years, and what, a billion, million, trillion dollars? They have invested trying to find out, did the Russians and believe the Russians uh, infiltrated into our system of trying to control the election. And I look at something like that and listen to those guys talk, and I say to myself, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you know how many governments, our government, since World War II has toppled? Well, let me give you the list. In 1953, we didn't like what was going on in Iran. So the military and the CIA went in secretly, got the good guys against the bad guys, and overthrew the Iran government. In 1954, we did it in Guatemala. In 1960, we didn't like what was going on in the Congo, so we sent in some CIA guys with a military coup guys, and they took it over, and they overthrew that government in 1960. They did it in Guyana in 1966. In Chile in 1973, Argentina in 1976, Afghanistan. You know why we got the problem we got in Afghanistan and why they hate us and why we killed us? Why don't we kill us with all the Muslims? I'll tell you why. Because in 1976, we grabbed that dog by both ears and overthrew that government. And how did that work for us? We saw it in Argentina in 1978. We saw it in Grenada. 
We saw it in Nicaragua in 1971 or 81. We saw it in El Salvador in 1980. We saw it in the Philippines in 1986. And then in 2000 in Europe with the Serbs and the Croatians and all of that. Our government went in and overthrew those governments so we could have a better relationship with the government because we didn't like the one that was in there. Wow. I mean, are you kidding me? It was in my day in 1960s where we had the Bay of Pigs. Now, the Bay of Pigs, based on our last couple of sermons, was not a beach where unsaved women went. The Bay of Pigs was a real Bay of Pigs (laughs) down in Cuba. And Fidel Castro had come to come on the throne. And he was, he was a threat. He was communist. And we didn't like the idea that 90 miles from Florida was a communist country that was in line with Russia that Russia could use. We didn't like that. So you know what the CIA did? The CIA got all these anti-Castro Cubans, brought them into a secret military base, trained them in the art of warfare, and then looched, launched a coup to take back Cuba and, and try to, uh, to dethrone Castro while they thought about every way to kill him. Exploding cigars because he liked cigars. Putting poison in something that he would eat. They tried to get rid of him. Our country. We didn't just intervene in the elections. We were intervening to take down the leaders of that country so we could get a guy that we liked in there. Now, you know what happened. It was a disaster. The CAA backed, uh, guys went in, they got trapped on the beach, they needed air cover. they did it behind the scenes, even Kennedy didn't know it. Then they come to Kennedy, who was president then, and says, we need air support or these guys are going to get taken and lost and we're going to lose it. He refused to do it. Man, I don't have time to get into it, but that's where his days were being numbered for his assassination down the line, but that's another story we don't have time to get into this morning, but we should. It was incredible. You see, as Americans, we are wise in our own conceits. We think that our form of government, capitalism, and democracy is the greatest uh, and the best in the world. So when, when Russia does it to us, and I'm sure they did intervene. I'm sure they did. I, I guarantee you they probably I don't know my facts. I, I just guarantee you. If, if Russia, I guarantee you they did. I promise you they did. But you see, when they do it, we don't like it. When we do it, we call it nation building. We call it winning hearts and minds. Because we are so wise in our own conceits that we think that our form of government is the greatest government on the planet. And we want everybody to have what we have. So we believe that so much when they're oppressed. We go in and topple the governments. And we put up a guy in there that uh, we want to have, and we want to make it a democracy. We want to make it part of the free world. It's okay when we do it, but it's not okay when somebody else tries to do it to us. Uh, you know, and little do we know, getting back to the Bible, little do we know that in the book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon goes through and lays out all of the governments that man is going to come up with, He talks about socialism. He talks about fascism. He talks about totalitarianism. He talks about paganism. He talks about humanism. And he talks about communism. And he also, in the list, talks about capitalism and democracy. 
The greatest form of government is not some government that gives you everything you want. The greatest form of government is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and sits on that throne in Jerusalem and rules this world with a rod of iron. And yet we look at that and we're so wise in our own conceits and we're so far away from God. We think, oh, bring them, give them the freedom that they have. Let me tell you something. The greatest movement of God in Christianity in the 20th century wasn't in America. It was in communist Russia. It was in communist China. It was in communist North Korea. There were more people saved and more converts to Christ during those years under the oppression of communism. You know, we need a little out in America. You know why you don't get into the Bible? Because you never paid a cost to have it in the first place. You know, you know why you don't come to church? These people, when they went to Russia, if they got caught going to church, they spent 10 years in hard labor in prison for going to church. Well, that'll cut out the non-hackers, won't it? I can say, safe to say, that you've got people to show up to church in those countries, they mean business. I mean, uh, I mean, you're going to face going to jail for five years or ten years in a Soviet prison or a Chinese prison? Are you kidding me? All for going to church? You have to have some kind of investment with God to put your life on the line like that. I ain't kidding you. Most of God's people never paid a price for anything. To most of God's people today, the meaning of sacrifice is what God did for you. It'll never mean what you'll sacrifice for him in your life. Because we got it all. We're the only church in church history that never paid a price for anything. We got everything free. You know what you got? The Bible you got, you didn't pay a thing for it. You know how you got it? Somebody paid the price in the 16th, 17th, 15th, 14th, 12th century for you to have it. You never paid a price for it. You never paid a price for the church. You never paid a price for your salvation. Everything was given to you, handed to you, and you got spoiled with it because you're in a country where you have two chickens in every pot and two cars in every garage. And you get up on Sunday morning, you don't have to sneak to church, get past the security guards. You just get up and yawn and roll over and say, I ain't going today. We need a little of that. Some of the God's people all their lives never paid a price for anything with God. And you see it. You see it in, in, in history. I mean, the greatest book you will ever read, if you want a book on history and how God works and how the devil works, the, and we have in the bookstore back there, the greatest book you ever read is a book by Avril Manhattan, who was probably the world's foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church. And he died a natural death a number of years ago. I don't know how he ever survived without being killed. But he, was a great, and he wrote a lot of books, and they're out of print. You buy them on, online, they're, they're $180 a book. But I'll tell you, as far as I'm concerned, I've read them all, I have them all. And the greatest book that he ever wrote is a book called Vietnam, Why Did We Go? You talk about America grabbing a dog by both ears and can't let go and when she does let go, gets bit. It was incredible. And I'm telling you again, you cannot separate the God of the Bible from the God of history. And when the Bible says a wise, a foolish and a slothful man grabs a dog by the ears, I'm telling you, you see it in people's lives and you see it in history. 
And the reason why they do is because they thrust themselves into situations they have no business being in because they're wise in their own conceit. Most people don't understand the Vietnam conflict. It was my war and many of your war, the older guy's war. It was a war that was not a very popular war. I remember going to the airport in my uniform and people would walk up and spit on you. I remember that, you know, they would, uh, they would uh, protest and guys were burning their draft card. You guys don't even know what the draft is. You think it's an open window. <laughs> people would burn their draft cards and go to Canada rather than to serve in the military. And it, it was a bad time for America. Uh, it's always been amazing to me how that politicians today who are running our country or the men who were against and the liberals and the hippies during the Vietnam War. You know, we have uh, the guy that was the secretary, uh, John Kerry, under Obama. He was a naval lieutenant in World War, or in uh, Vietnam. And uh, when he came back from Vietnam, he <coughs> shunned the military, got hooked up with a beer-drinking, marijuana-smoking crowd, denounced America, and took his medals that he had won in Vietnam to the White House and threw them over the White House gate into the White House lawn. Now, some 30, 40 years later, when it benefits him to be pro-military, and people just buy into that. You see, I never miss a thing. I never miss a thing. Uh, it's a thing where those things happen, and I know that mindset of that time and that, and that era. And I'm telling you, you know, most people don't understand. Uh, you know, in World War II, Vietnam was run by the Japanese. The French had it before, and then they got kicked out, and then the Japanese moved in when they took all of, uh, all of Asia Minor and, and most of everything over there. And, you know, at the end of the war, they got defeated. The French wanted to come back in. Well, Vietnam is a, is, is a long, elongated country, you know, and while they were coming in, the communists were coming in. Ho Chi Minh and those guys up there, they, they, didn't, they, they didn't want the Japanese in anymore, and they didn't want the French in anymore. So communism began to move in, and in time, it separated North Vietnam from South Vietnam. The French tried to keep them out and tried to get the land back, but they were overwhelmed. France didn't do a very good job in World War II. And now she has the worst job there. And, of course, you might guess that all turned out, this is in the 50s now. I mean, World War II hadn't been over three or four years, and we're back in a conflict in Southeast Asia. Of course, you might guess that America is paying for 80% of that war, even though we're not involved in it yet. Well, the French get kicked out. And then we, America goes in. And the real story is, and I don't have time to get into it, the real story goes way back before that in Fatima, Portugal, when those three little Portugal kids saw the Virgin Mary and got a thing and gave it to the Pope. And the Pope, one of the promises was that the communism was going to be ended by the Roman Catholic Church. From that point on, the Roman Catholic Church began to get into politics to stop communism. It's why we got into Korea. It's why we got into Vietnam. Uh, it, it, it just, it, it's one of the most amazing things. You'll see it in the book, Vietnam, Why Did We Go? By the time the 1950s and the 60s show around, the Roman Catholic Church has infiltrated our government. You got James Forrestal, who's a Secretary of Defense, Roman Catholic. Senator McCarthy, Roman Catholic. He went through all of, all of America calling everybody a communist. He was a rabid dog. You got General McGrath, 
Attorney General McGrath, Roman Catholic. Frank Matthews, Secretary of the Navy, Roman Catholic. General Mark Clark, over all of NATO forces, Roman Catholic. You got uh, uh, George Craig, head of the American Legion, which was a big deal back then, Roman Catholic. John Dellis. John Dellis and his brother, uh, Alan Dellis. Alan Dellis was the head of the CIA in the Cuba deal. And his brother, Alan Dellis, was, uh, or John Dellis, was the Secretary of State. And that's where, in Vietnam, we had a guy in there by the name of Bio Dio, who was the president of Vietnam. Our government didn't like him being in there because he was pro-Buddhist, and he was, he, was not, he was anti-Roman Catholic. So, you know what happened? Because of the pulling of the string between Cardinal Spellman and Pope Pius X, or XII, uh, uh, over there, in, uh, in all of our filtration with the Roman Catholics into our government, here's what they did. The CIA got a guy who later became, his name was Diem. He was a South, South Vietnamese. He was an avid Roman Catholic. They took him to Georgetown University for 10 years in exile, and he was trained in Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit school, by the Jesuits. And he was trained in every aspect. And when he was ready, when he was ready, our CIA went in and got toppled that government and set Diem up as government and a Roman Catholic. His brother was the Archbishop of U, and his other brother became head of the secret police. Most of you don't remember this. Some of you older guys probably do. Remember all those Buddhists that were drowsing themselves in gasoline in Vietnam and setting themselves on fire? It was on the news every night. I mean, you talk about a, a, a terrible thing. These Buddhist monks would sit down in the street, pour gasoline on themselves, and they would light themselves on fire and burn. Nobody understood it. The reason why they were doing that is because when Diem got into it and he was a Catholic, he immediately started to persecute the Buddhist monks and the Buddhist faith to get rid of them so that country could become uh, totally Roman Catholic. And it's an incredible thing. We went into Vietnam because we wanted to keep communists out because that's what the Roman Catholic Church and all they needed. They had everything in their government. They lacked one thing. Guess what it was? a Roman Catholic president. And they got that with John F. Kennedy in 1960-61. Now it looked like it was complete. And it looked like we're going to go. Kennedy met Diem before Kennedy when he was a senator. He supported putting Diem in over there. And our government, yes, our government grabbed the dog by both ears. We stuck our nose into a country that we never should have stuck it in because of the Roman Catholic pressure and the Roman Catholics in our government to do that, to fulfill some fantasy that three Portugal children had in 1914 to stop world communism. And it's an incredible concept. It's laid out in that book in such an incredible way. That book opened my eyes to history and set me on the path when I did my work on JFK and who assassinated him. It's one of the most incredible things in this planet. Now, once Diem got in there, oh, he got out of control. He got out of control. He, he started killing everybody. And his brother was a secret police. The persecution of the Buddhist monks and the Buddhist churches by these Roman Catholic fanatics got to such a level that even our government was embarrassed by. So you know what we did? The same CIA that went in and defunct the president that was there and put Diem in now puts another coup d'etat together and we go in and we bring him down, kill him and his brother, the Secret Service guy. The rest of the story is we lost Vietnam. We had, what, 30,000 of our young men go and give their life for a bogus cause. 
Now, let me just say something to you here. I, I'm a patriot. I don't want you to, I mean, I'm just giving you the facts of life and the facts of history, but I'm a patriot. And I'll tell you this right now. That Vietnam was my war as it was some of you guys' war. And I'm telling you, and I still believe this today, it's not my call. I would never burn my draft card even if I knew what I knew now. I would never refuse to fight in that war because the job of every Christian is not to determine whether a war is moral or an immoral. The job of every Christian is to take up arms in defense of his country when he's called upon as a patriot, and then God judges nations just like he judges individuals. That's my Bible take on it. But I'm telling you, we grabbed that old dog by both ears and we couldn't get out. I remember as a young boy watching the news every week on the news, they'd have the list of how many American boys were killed this week in Vietnam. Sad deal. Hey, when I was in the military up at Fort Devens, they found out I could play the trumpet. They, I did more funerals. I was the only guy. I did, I did every military funeral uh, in, in me and another guy. We did every military funeral in New England. They sent me all over that place, man. And I'll tell you what. There's been many a heartbreak of those young boys coming back have been killed. Some of them open caskets, some of them not. Some of them are just unbelievable. Standing there, blowing taps, boy, over the, that, that flag-draped coffin. And I'll tell you what, it was a, it was a time when we lost 30,000 of our youngest, bravest soldiers and young men and young ladies uh, in our country, all because of the fact that we grabbed a dog by the ears and we got bit. And I'm telling you, that verse is a powerful verse, not only for you and me, for sticking our nose in other people's business. It's a powerful verse for us as a nation, as a country, to realize we need to stay out of other people's problems unless it comes to us. Now, we, 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 we call, have a word for that today by the liberals, and it's called, an, you're, oh, you're an isolationist. No, I'm a person who just minds my own business. Your track record in history as somebody who wanted to make the world a free democracy is nothing but blood, sweat, and tears and millions and millions of people dying and being killed so you could accomplish some goal. Well, i look at the next couple of verses here, verses 18 and 19. As a madman who casts firebrands, arrows, and death, so is a man that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport? Now, this is all too familiar. <clears throat> this is really a good practical one. <clears throat> the cool guy making fun of the nerd guy. Uh, you know, I, I don't really have a good answer for what I'm about to tell you, but I've always stuck up for the little guy. I just, I just can't stand bullies. I remember one time I was down, I don't even know why I was down there. It was a number of years ago. I was down in Eaton as a plaza for some reason. I don't know what I was down there for. Might have picked something up. I don't know. But I was ate at Panera down there. You know where it is on the west end of the thing. And I'm sitting down there and I'm eating. And there's this little kid who, a teenager. But you can obviously see he's not the cool guy at school. You know, he didn't dress right. He had acne all over his face, you know. And he's probably a little slow. And over here was a table with two guys and three girls. And these guys were the jocks. And uh, they were trying to uh, be funny and make joke of the young kid over here. And all the little girls were giggling. You know how they do. Real tough guys, you know. 
And I sat there and I was eating and he, the kid was minding his own business and I can tell that and they were, they were, it was getting pretty. So I just got my food, went up and sat down with him. And I just sat down with him. I said, hey, I hope you don't mind that I get sat down with him. He says, oh, no, 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 that's fine. I said, my name is Bob. And he gave me his name. We talked for a little bit. And the guy said one more thing. And, you know, I'm out of my mind here. I turned around and I said, look, you know what? I'm sick and tired of you picking on this kid. Maybe you want to pick on me. Now, that was the stupidest thing I ever said. This kid probably would have wiped the floor up with me and I'd have had to kill him. <laughs> it ceased. But I'm just telling you, I've always, I can't stand bullies picking on little guys. And uh, I know this is all too familiar. Taking a cheap shot at somebody and making fun of them uh, or the butt of some joke uh, to hurt them, um, you know, and, and then you, you, you say, say, oh, you mask it by saying, oh, I was just kidding. Now, let me clarify this. Around here, we joke all the time with each other. We really do. We kid each other. And we get into it really good, and I, and I love it. But at, at the end of the day, the difference is no matter what, we'd all die for each other. I love to have fun with people. I, I love people to have fun with me. I think God's people take themselves way too seriously. Amen. Amen. I get uptight about way too many things. Uh, you know what? The best advice I could give you is learn to laugh at yourself. Amen. Enjoy a good joke on yourself. You guys give it to me all the time. I love it. You know what? Because I can give it back. I make, you, need to, you need to make fun of yourself. I, sometimes I'll beat you to the punch because I'll make fun of something stupid I did on my own and I deprive you of the privilege. <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, if I don't play with you, I don't like you. But I know you need to be careful. I mean, there's a balance in it. If I see some new visitor here, I'm not going to go up and make a fool out of him. Uh, you're just not. But, you know, you, we have fun. We're a family. And none of us take it too seriously. And we all have people we like to, you guys give it to me all the time. I mean, uh, I mean I've known Meredith over here since she was, what, born. I call her meth. Everybody called her meth. I tell her she's my meth addiction, you know. She's married to Will over here. And Meredith and I go at it all the time. I have no problem going up to her and saying, Meredith, I really like your hair. Who did it, the North Wind? And she'll come back to me, see. She'll give it back to me. We understand each other. It's, it's okay, things like that. I mean, come on. Bubba, are you kidding me? Bubba takes the brunt of more jokes around here and puts it out. Did you ever hear those guys in the band getting on each other? I mean, sometimes they can't get even the song out because they're cl- cracking on each other so much. And I love it. It's okay. You don't see them putting their storming out of here mad. It's, it's, we're fun. We have fun. I pick on Nikki Brown all the time. Nikki gives it back to me. I say, Nikki, I said, Nikki, that's a nice dress you have on today. Well, thank you, Bob. Yeah, too bad they didn't have it in your size. I mean, you know, we, we get it. Alex, are you kidding me? Alex is giving it to everybody. We're always giving it to Alex. Alex tells me white men can't jump. I tell Alex, black olives matter. <laughs> We give it, Will and I go at it all the time. I remember the time you wore those god-awful orthopedic shoes. You never wore them since. 
And I, I asked you, I said, how far did you chase that cripple guy to get those shoes? He came, the next week I had shoes on, he came back and nailed me. You, we don't get mad about it. God's people get so uptight. They get so, oh, oh, you made fun of me. Well, you know what? Make fun of yourself. Realize that we're, you know, we're all goofy. I mean, I understand. I, you, know, you know, whatever you say, it won't make me mad. I know I'm goofy and I'm the original Clark Griswold. You're looking at him. I give it to Gail Walker. And Gig gives it right back. Absolutely. Gail's one of my, remember a couple of weeks ago when Gail came up, was your birthday. And how old were you then, when, last year, this last time? 60. 60. And nobody believes she was 60. No. And that's not the real miracle. She not only has the secret to eternal youth, she has the secret to weight loss. You didn't know her back in the day. <laughs> I was, I was talking to Foots this week, and we were talking, and, and I said, you know, your wife's an amazing, and he says, she is the most amazing woman I ever met, and I said, she is, I said, you know what, she doesn't look 60, and he says, yeah, and I'll tell you what, you should have saw her before she had that weight loss program, she, she, she is amazing, and I said, really, and he says, yeah, and so I just want to tell you. He brought in a pair of her jeans. <laughs> You're my hero. We need to learn to laugh at ourselves. We need to quit being so uptight. And we need to realize that we have fun with each other. And we, we do it because we love each other. And we have that balance as a family here that you don't find in most churches. And we just, we, we get along. We just, we doesn't matter. Nobody takes it seriously. You know, I, I tell you, I, I laugh at myself most of the time when I'm not crying. <laughs> But in the wrong way, and I wanted to put a contrast. We've all seen it and experienced it. One time, Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was an old frontier preacher. He was as tough as could be. And he would go out to these places where these mountain men or these, these cattle guys or whatever, and he would preach to them. And he'd get a big fire going, and he would get him around there, and he'd start preaching to them. And you know how they are. You're going to get some guys who act up and, and try to break up the service. You guys at the mission see it all the time. You'll get up there to try to preach, and somebody out back there will say, I already heard that preacher. Or somebody will say to somebody else, that's mine, you ain't, and they'll get a fight break out. Well, you know, times haven't changed that much. And old Peter Cartwright, he just had that happen. He just stopped the preacher and go out and kick the fire out of those guys, beat them senseless, and then come back up and finish the message. One time he went east. They invited him to a preacher's conference. And he, you know, everybody there is wearing the high stiff collars, you know, and he shows up in his, in his you know, his frontier leathers, you know, and everything, you know, and he just shows up there and, and all the 
Bible scholars are there, you know, and they're going to belittle him in front of everybody. And one of them nudged the other scholars and said, watch this. And he says, Brother Cartwright. And he said, yes, sir. And he started to speak to him in Greek, knowing that Cartwright didn't speak Greek and he was going to use him the butt of his joke and try to befuddle him. Well, you never got ahead of Cartwright. You know what he did? He answered him back in Chickwa Sioux Indian, and, and, and the guy just looked at his other friend and said, he's got it, he's got it, he's got it. <laughs> I'm telling you, people will try to make a point at, at our expense sometimes. And you'll have people who get jealous of you because God maybe is doing something in your life that he's not doing for them. And they'll try to put you down. Or you'll find people who don't want you to get past them uh, in your spiritual growth. So they'll do things to belittle you or keep you down. Hey, there will be people that have such an inferiority complex among themselves all their life that all they can do is to uh, try to be looking good by making somebody else look bad. So they make fun of you in a cloaked motive. And then at the end, <laughs> I was just kidding. Well, I really didn't mean anything by it. Sure you did. You wanted to make your point, so you cloaked your remark in humor, and so you could run back to that little hallway of I was just kidding when you got called on it. Hey, Solomon had you figured out in 1000 B.C., brother, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. Now look at verse 20. Where no word is, the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. Oh, man, how, what a good, easy one. This is the graph. This is an easy one. All these are easy to graph. It is hard to do. And what he's saying here is for you and for me, we ought to be problem solvers, not problem causers. He says here, a fire, strife, issues, problems will go out if you don't keep putting wood on it. And a problem, an issue, will go out unless you just keep pouring gasoline on it to keep it burning. And then he says in verse 21, As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle, to kindle strife. And he does that because he's, he's contentious, he's slothful, he's wise in his own conceit. And without a doubt, this will be the number one single thing that will destroy churches. Or people. And that's why in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, when he laid out the six things that God hates, Proverbs 6, verse 16, six things, 666, he capped off the sixth with the seventh one. And he separated the seventh from the other six, telling us that the seventh one was an abomination to God. And you know what it was? Sowing discord among the brethren. And that seems to be in the day and age that we live in, maybe it's been true all down through Christianity, I don't know, I've only got a short 68 years to judge it by, but it seems to be that many of God's people's spiritual gift today, showing discord. In verse 23, this is called burning lips. You see, the devil knew the number one component of the New Testament church and Christianity had to be a unity, a oneness, a singleness. That's why he said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, when he's laying out everything to the church and he's setting up what the church should be. This is why he says that we should be in one body, why we should be one of one spirit. We should have one hope. We should have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one gospel, one church, one, one book. 
And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, he says in verse 3, the reason they do this is to keep the unity of the Spirit of God. That's the number one thing. And that's, what, that's why a church needs to be a family. A family has its squabbles, certainly. Hey, I've had family. Uh, you, know, you know how most police officers get killed in a domestic violence? They go there because a the woman called the cops because their husband's beating her, and he goes there to solve it, and she's beat up pretty bad, and he tries to take the husband, and she, she fights against the husband going to jail and winds up getting hurt in the thing. In other words, blood is thicker than water. And it's a thing where, you know, that's a, that's a terrible thing because, truthfully, the water is a water birth and the blood of the blood of Christ. And in our case, blood, the blood of Christ, should be thicker than our earthly birth in the water we were born into this planet because we should be different. And we should have a oneness. And that was a single thing, you know, that we needed to have. When that got disrupted, it, it all falls apart. You know, back again, uh, talking about history, our country's history. The phrase, in God we trust, wasn't just a quote that we put on money. It was a single thing that this country was built on, and we believed it at a time, that the only thing this country had was God. We recognized that what was happening in Europe, how he got it started, and that's why when they did the Declaration of Independence, when Thomas Jefferson was doing it, they looked at it and said, there ain't enough references to God. They sent it back, and he had to put three more in it. But when you look at it today, it's, it's completely broken on all levels. There was a time when we used to call the United States a union. It was a union of states. Every year or so, the President of the United States will get up and give a State of the Union address. In that, he tries to tell everybody how good the union's doing. Well, I know what the State of the Union, it's a mess. And today, the unity is completely gone and torn apart by all the different factions. And uh, just like that happens, the lessons from history we never learn, so goes Christianity. You see, what the devil couldn't do in Russia, China, and Korea, through the pain and through the torture and through the murder and through the, uh, you know, the intimidation and through the terror of literally hundreds of millions of God's people, and, uh, you know, you find that uh, there's not nothing writ- wrote about them. Nobody was writing great books. They're all doing that over here. They're languishing in prison. They're being tortured for their faith. Their families are being arrested. They're being arrested. And yet Christianity is spreading like wildfire through those countries. You see, what the devil couldn't do in Russia, China, and Korea through all of his persecutions, he accomplished in supposedly the greatest nation on earth uh, in just 50, 60 short years right before uh, our eyes and nobody could see it. Uh, He killed this country. He killed Christianity. He killed churches by giving them everything that they wanted. Affluence. Well, you had a kid that killed somebody here a couple of years ago, rich kid, and his lawyer pleaded not guilty and his lawyer, his defense of his lawyer to the judge or to the jury was he did this because all of his life he got everything he wanted and it was the affluence of what he had that made him kill these people. How stupid that is. But that's what the devil did here. He gave us everything we wanted. Now, I'm not saying you can't live in that in a balance. I'm certainly not saying everybody sell everything and it's all moved to Nairobi someplace. But what I am saying is this, that's the way he did it. And you see it in Revelation chapter 3 because he says there that the church, the Laodicean church, the church that we're part of says that you're rich, you're increased with good, and you have need of nothing. 
Now, I'll tell you something else that these guys can't get, never will get it. I told you those countries were the greatest revivals, the greatest Christians and the strongest Christians who paid a price for what they believed. But I'll tell you, there was no mega churches in Russia. There was no mega churches in China. There's no mega churches in North Korea or North Vietnam. That's only in America. While they were meeting under trees and alleys and in garages, wherever they could. You got God's people in America wouldn't walk across the street to go to a church that wasn't in a Taj Mahal someplace. In 1980, the wall came down. We had been ready at that point in time to, uh, in touch with missionaries in the East Bloc countries. We had taken the same discipleship material that you have, and we have translated into Russian, into Romanian, um, into Yugoslavia, and all of those East Bloc nations. When the wall came down, the door came open. And I was in one of the first teams, and some of you were actually on those teams later on. But we were on the, I was one of the first teams that went into Romania. And we worked there with churches, with pastors that was open and free now to teach them the Bible. And we went in to teach them discipleship. And when I would take a team of 18, 19, 20 singles in like you, some marriage too. And we would, we would go and we would, uh, you know, go in there and spend 10 days or so. And we would teach the church how to disciple. And we would try to do that. We saw immediately the need. I remember them having great crusades. We had an evangelist Richard with us, with, with a good friend of mine. And uh, he was preaching. And, and uh, I was sitting there with a pastor uh, in the bleachers. And it was in a soccer stadium. And this is, this is a country that a year before, if you even mentioned the Bible, you went to prison. Now it's all gone and the gospel is wide open. And here... We are, there are about to be 30,000 people in this stadium. And this guy is preaching. And the pastor uh, who I was staying with said, Bob, he says, look back here. And it was this big, high building with people in the windows. He says, a year ago, that was the building of the secret police. And they tortured more Christians and put them in prison. And we never dreamed we would have what we have right here in our country. That morning, a morning I went with him and his wife down to the local store. And it was just a, a, a store probably no bigger than this room. Not the grocery stores that we have here. And I walked into the store and all that was on the barren shelves, everything was barren except maybe eight or nine jars of made up preserves that had probably been sitting there for two or three years. And the line for bread was probably a quarter of a mile. Not everybody got bread. And it's a, it's a stark cry from what we have here in this country. And you see, we don't need to trust God for anything today in most cases. If you're a person who trusts God for something, you're a rare individual. Well, what do you need to trust God for? You got everything you want. It's all brand new. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you never forget the one who gave it to you in the first place. And I stood there in line and I thought to myself, wow. And then, then, oh yeah, America never seizes, American Christians never seize the opportunity to make a buck off of somebody else's pain. Right after that, Jerry Falwell went on television and made a plea out to all of his radio audience, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. 
And he talked about the poor plight in the East Bloc countries and how that if you would just give $500, we want to bring all of these pastors over. And for two and a half, three years, we want to put them in in our seminaries and then we want to send them back to be pastors to their people. Well, you know how many people who were good-hearted people that couldn't see past the sham and they brought in what, two, three, four, five hundred pastors. And after they were here for three years and had a taste of America, not one of them wanted to go back. You see, instead of taking what we have over there in place, which what we did, no, they wanted to bring them out of their environment, bring them to America, treat them like kings, give them everything they want, and then you're going to send them back to a grocery store where there's nothing in it and you've got to wait in line for two hours for a piece of bread? Wise in your own conceits. I'm telling you. Listen to me. We talk about freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom of oppression, freedom from liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness. That freedom could never come from a government or a country who has taken God and the Bible from its core value and replaced it with the possessions of secularism, humanism, and idealism but rather real freedom, the real pursuit of happiness and liberty in Christ will always have to come from the Word of God inside the heart of God's people who in the middle of any repressive government will understand what the book of Philemon is teaching that your freedom doesn't depend on the shackles on your hands or your feet. Your freedom depends on the freedom of your soul that God has saved you and sets you free and He'll put you in any situation He wants you in and He'll open doors for you the real peace of God and the real rest that comes from that peace will only be found in the Word of God as God's people become a oneness together with the Word of God. And that unity, that oneness, puts an end to strife. But yet you always have people who want to downplay what God is doing by putting wood on a fire to keep the problems going and never will follow the biblical process to deal with issues. Instead, they just keep throwing wood on a fire instead of putting the fire out. You take away the wood, and the fire goes out. You take away the tailbearer, and the strife will cease. And a contentious man will always kindle strife. There's no satisfaction in their own lives, so they feel that they must intervene in other people's lives because they can't fulfill their own so they're going to get in this spiritual mindset of I got all the answers they don't work for me but I'll help them work for you listen when you find out who you really are in Christ you don't bother worrying about who's dating who or who's saying what or doing what you don't worry about who got engaged or is planning on getting married you don't sit around and talk about who bought what and, and where and when. You realize and understand that you got plenty of your own issues to work on. Amen. And everything in church, if everybody in churches across America Day would just start to fix themselves and try to start to fix everybody else, we'd end all the problems in Christianity. I tell husbands and wives all the time when they come in in marital scenarios, you know, she won't like what the husband does, and a lot of times the husband will retaliate by not liking what she does. And the reason why they've got strife because she didn't like it, so she tried to fix him. He didn't like her, so he tried to fix her. 
And I want to tell you right now, you don't have the ability to fix anybody. Amen. And I tell them all the time, this is your source problem. This is your core problem right here. This is your misunderstanding. You don't like him, so you're trying to fix him. And your way of fixing him is yelling at him, screaming, and doing all the things that you do. He doesn't like what the way you are, so his way is retaliating because of what you're saying to him. I said, I got a novel idea for you. You want, you want to strike the cease in your marriage? I'll tell you what you do. Just quit each other throwing wood on the other fire. I'll tell you what you do, sir. There's a role of the husband. You start working on you and fixing you, no matter what she does, to fix your role and ma'am, if you, there's a role of the wife, and if you start working in your role to fix you and trying to fix him, when you work at fixing you as a husband and you work at fixing you as the wife, you won't have any problems. I guarantee it. And you only have problems when one or the other won't stay with it or won't do it or, you know, tries to circumvent the church to do it their own way and add their own little spices into it, and that's when you get into problems. And I'm telling you, there's a rule of the husband in the Bible and there's a rule of the wife in the Bible. When the husband works at fixing himself instead of worrying about fixing her and she worries about fixing herself instead of worrying to fix him, the problems will go. And it works in the church. Now, there are times that you work with people. I get that. We understand that. You disciple them. You deal with them. They got some legitimate problems. I get that. I understand it. But this thing, of just because they don't you know, like, like America, if a, a, a foreign country doesn't have the things that we have, we think it's inferior. This has been the failure of missions for years. American missionaries have a superiority. They go into these countries and want to make these countries little Americas. All the missionaries will get a little compound down in Mexico and they'll have a little American flag. They'll have all the little American pins on their, lapel pins on their thing. And they want to teach them American hymns. They want to do all of this. They don't, they, because they think that American Christianity culture is superior to their own culture. And that's a tragic mistake. It's not. So they try to do the same thing. I, general in Vietnam one time, he preached to us, and, er, preaching to us. he was talking to us and he said, we're going to go over there, boys, and we're going to get this thing done and we're going to win it. Because I want you to know, inside every Vietnamese, there's an American trying to break out. And missionaries think inside every Christian down in another culture, there's an American Christian wanting to break out. So we don't allow them to have their own culture because we think wives in their own conceit, our culture is superior. It's not. It's not. The Bible tells you in the book of Acts why he separated the nations and separated the sons of Adam. He told you that. You just missed that. And of course, that's, that's just where we're at today, and it's a tragedy. Three great principle, practical principles for us today that you want to take home. First one is paramount. Mind your own business. I could say that there's one, another 1A to that, which would say, mind your own business. The second thing is be careful of your motive in having a good time. Make sure it's family. Make sure it's no ulterior motive to it. You're just having fun with each other and take it as well as you get it. The third thing is keep the wood pile of your strife kindling material to a minimum. <coughs> be a problem solver. Fix things. Don't break them. Solve problems. Don't cause them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13 says, and he gave, talking about the church, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
And I'm telling you, I know that verse is talking about when the Lord comes back and we all get his glorified body and the oneness there. I understand that, but there's no reason why the church can't have that oneness today. We have everything that we need. My favorite verse, and I'll leave you with this, on something like this, is Psalms 133, verses 1 through 3. I think it's one of the greatest verses for churches anywhere, any place in all of the Bible. And it says this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the beard that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garment. And the dew of Hebron, and as the dew descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessings, even life forevermore. The unity of the brethren is like the Holy Spirit of God completely filling from Aaron's head through his beard down to his feet. A filling of the Holy Spirit of God typified by the oil that ends strife, that ends issues, that brings forth peace, that brings forth forgiveness, that brings forth understanding, that brings forth letting things go and forgetting the things of the past and building that unity which is only going to take us forward. All the things that God people involved in don't take the church forward, it puts it in reverse. There's only one thing that will move a church forward, and that is the unity of the brethren.